Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Preacher's Corner. I'm Pastor Jay, and today we're going to give it a shot in moving forward in John. We're going to start off in chapter number two, beginning on the first verse. For the length of time that my voice will stay with us, that we will pray the Lord will bless the opportunity to get through and share the Word of God with you today. So let's turn to the Lord and ask for His blessing. Father, we are grateful for the day that you have given us, and we do ask you, Father, that your blessing would be upon this, your servant, that we may be able to proclaim the the realities of John chapter number 2 and rejoice in the things that Jesus is doing. The realities, Lord, also that, that these are the same things that Jesus is doing in our hearts and lives today. Father, that we may connect with our Savior, that we may be able to grow in the knowledge of our Savior, and that we may be able to go into this world proclaiming the truth that we receive this day. In the blessed name of Jesus, amen. All right, guys, we're going to start off in John chapter number 2. We're going to read from verses 1, clear down to verse number 12, and the reading of God's Word today. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what if I have to do with you? My hour is not yet come. His mother said unto his servants, Whatsoever he says to you, do it. And there were set six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not from where it came, But the servants which drew the water knew. (laughs) The governor of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said unto him, Every man at the beginning sets forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. There are several things about this turning water into wine that that are very important for us to receive today, and so we're going to take a look at them. But one thing of importance is found here in John chapter 2 and verse number 1. It says, and the third day. Now, a very, very important connection to make is the reality of what that third day actually is. And so if you go back to John chapter number one, all we have is a continuation of timeline that is being spoken from Genesis chapter number one. So Jesus, he goes through the time of his baptism. And of course, you know that as he rises from the water, the father speaks from heaven and the the Spirit of God lands upon him like unto a dove, and he says, This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Then, the next day, you find that in John chapter number 1, and verse 35, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, <clears throat> and he looked at Jesus and walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Of course, 
he's encouraging these folks to follow Jesus. In which case you see that that Andrew is going to collect Simon. You're going to end up with your, your first four disciples along with Nathaniel. So you're going to have Andrew and Simon and who's Peter. And of course, James and John are going to come alongside Andrew and Simon. And you're going to have Nathaniel. And so he comes down to verse number 43 and it says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So from verse number 35 where you have from the from the baptism of john uh the next day and then from the next day after that he's going to call uh nathaniel in verse number 43 to follow him and so it's very important to realize that that's day two then when you move to chapter two on the third day there in Galilee, where he'd already decided to go, where, where he found Nathanael, and where his disciples are following him now. It says, on the third day, there's a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Well, who's that? Of course, we know that's Mary. But it's interesting how it, it labels her as the mother of Jesus is there, instead of calling her Mary as she was. Now, this, this wedding at Cana, no question, was someone that was close to the family of Mary and close to the family of Jesus, for he is also invited to the wedding along with his disciples. Of course, you're going to invite Jesus, you're going to get his disciples because that's how the custom works. Disciples will follow their master wherever their master goes, and so this is the situation but this is a family member, most likely, that is very close to to Mary, who is Jesus' mother, of course. And so it comes to verse number three. And oftentimes this is said that this is the first miracle that Jesus has ever performed. Of course, uh, I don't agree with this, this idea because creation was the very first miracle that Jesus uh, made, <laughs> that, that Jesus did. For as in that he brought all things into existence out of nothing, I'd say that was the greatest miracle of all. And the second miracle that, that is even greater than that, which was for the purpose of the creation, is that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And so he's going to give himself unto our death so that he can provide us with his life. And so this is, this is pretty important miracles before uh, you get to this position of being the the water and the wine. Nevertheless, a great miracle takes place here because it says in verse number three that when they when the wine ran out, that the mother of Jesus said they have no wine. Now, there's a couple of things about wine in the Bible that are very important to understand. Just because you see the word wine written in the Bible doesn't mean that this is the alcoholic drink that we make today. Understand that the good wine that would be referred to, even as far back as Deuteronomy, when you get into the Torah and the books of the law, that the good wine was actually not alcoholic at all. The good wine was a fresh juice from the pressed grape. Now, understanding that in order for them to have wine, They've got to allow the sugars and introduce a yeasting agent or sugars to this wine for the fermentation process to begin. So if you 
just crushed up the the wine and 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 gathered the juice and just let the juice sit out somewhere then that juice is actually going to ultimately rot as the grapes would rot and that's going to become a vinegar which is what was given to Jesus as he was hanging up on the cross <clears throat> when he said I thirst and they dipped the sponge in vinegar well this is also a grape juice as it was but it had been left out to to essentially go bad which turns out that when it goes bad it actually turns really good because the vinegar that is the end process of that going bad is is has many health benefits for you and so it is very important to understand the difference between vinegar that is produced from the fruit or from the juice of the grapes as they would be crushed and just simply left as they are to go bad so that it can turn into vinegars or that you add sugars to it or you add yeasting agents to it in order for a fermentation process to happen in order for it to be transformed into to an alcoholic beverage and so that if you would have the the pure juice the fresh uh, pressed juice of the grape this is also called wine in the bible and it is the most flavored wine and it's actually the better for you by the time you get it into an alcohol you've actually taken away a lot of the good properties of the juice itself from those peptides that would come from the skins as they would blend in with the juice and and from the the elements that that would be inside of the grape as being pressed out to to make the juice and so when you would get the juice from that moment of of the pressing to to the the literally as close to the original grape as it would be just in the juice that is the best you're going to have for grape juice or the best you're going to have for wine and so that when they ran out of wine uh, the mother of jesus said they have no wine and and of course jesus He's saying, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this is kind of important because the hour that he's referring to is the time of, of his Messiahship. In other words, the time that he's going to be recognized in the synagogue, he has yet to go into the synagogue and to proclaim that the uh, message of Isaiah chapter number 41 and and to tell them that the prophecy is fulfilled in their eyes this day he's yet to begin the work of his his messiah ship unto being put on the cross and so he's telling her it's this is not my moment my moment is coming but this is not it as he's building his disciples but nevertheless he, he's going to perform this thing and this is the exciting thing about it is because God there's a lot of times that God will will deal with us in in such a manner as this where we will ask of him things and and he would instruct us just like Jesus does his mother but still he will perform those things because he understands the frailty of our heart the frailty of our mind Mary believes in him. Mary knows the, the ability that Jesus has to do this great thing that she has asked of him. And so that was why she would come to ask of him. And, and of course, he's not trying to reveal himself as in his authority or power during this period of time. 
But his mother asked of him this one thing. Now, there is a place where where people in the Catholic Church have this idea that that Mary still has the ability to command of Jesus the things that she desires and so that Jesus will do them because of this moment here in John chapter 2. But the reality is, is that Jesus's hour has come and that's not how uh, salvation works. That's not how forgiveness works. And so those who are clinging to a hope that Mary will intercede on their behalf before Jesus, even to this very day, so that those requests that she would make would, would be granted by Jesus, is not going to work that way. By the time that Jesus comes on the scene, you'll find things that we discover in John 14, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father except through me. So Mary doesn't have an ability to command Jesus anymore. Mary doesn't have a voice before the throne of God except for praise and, and for, for thanksgiving of the blessings she has personally received and being able to be before the throne of God even in this very day as one of the many among the cloud of witnesses that are there in the throne room of God. And so to rely upon Mary to continue asking for Jesus to do things for them to be to be done because of his love for his mother, uh, it doesn't work that way anymore. So you've got to turn to Jesus. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. This is very important to understand. Now, as Jesus said to her, woman, in verse number four, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, this is quite important because she comes to Jesus. She says, they've run out of wine. Now, Jesus has spoken to his mother and he says, but this doesn't have anything to do with me as concerning who I am. What, this is not my time. Mary totally didn't listen to anything that Jesus just said. <laughs> I think that's kind of funny at the onset here is that balance of relationship between between being a mother and recognizing that that this your son is is not uh not under your authority anymore of course keeping in mind that by this point of time jesus is 30 approximately 30 years of age now, at, at points that he's 30 years of age, understand that he's got, uh, between Mary and Joseph, there have been brothers and sisters that have been born that are, that are uh, a wide variety of ages underneath that 30 years. But nevertheless, there he is, 30 years old. Well, he's no longer under his mother's command. He's no longer under his parents' authority as it was because he's he's become... A man and he is going to be certified here as he has already been done by John the Baptist into the ministry as as being the a minister of the gospel and he, he now has three disciples and so he doesn't answer to Mary anymore but this is a scenario that we find in our society today where parents don't want to let go of their children uh, and it doesn't matter how old their children have become. In fact, it, it's gotten worse in our society today because there's people in their late 20s and there's people in their 30s that, that, that are still living at home. They have, they have 
full-time jobs. They have, they have everything that you can imagine, but they're still living at home instead of going forth and making a way. And not because they, they're challenged with finances that they can't leave home. That's not the case at all. Is because the parents have, have tried to hold on to them, mostly mothers, but there's dads in there too. They've so desperately tried to hold on to the children that they've never taught them how to be able to go out and live in an independent life. And so they've been so uh, kept back and, and sheltered that they don't know how to go. But this isn't the case with Jesus. Jesus is fully prepared to go do what his father has commanded him to do, what his father's will for him to do is. And here, mother, the mother of Jesus, she's just not letting go. She's just not ready to accept that, that she doesn't have a say in these things anymore. And so she, she doesn't even listen necessarily to what he told her as my hour's not yet come. This doesn't have anything to do with me. She just simply goes right past Jesus and, and grabs a hold of the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Well, now Jesus is on the spot. He's got to do something, right? Uh, this is one of those scenarios where the, the servants are, are just standing there at the position of attention, waiting to be told by Jesus, whatever it is that, that Jesus will tell them to do. So you, you got this scenario where, where Jesus is going to have to go to work. So you see at verse number six that there were six water jars and for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons in these jars. Now, the, the Jewish rites of purification. So, as you would have these people gathering together for this marriage, the people coming to the marriage would, would have a ceremony that would be done for them as, as in the washing of the hands and making of purification of, of their, their selves for the the being able to be a part of this wedding party because the wedding party is to be an example of the coming kingdom of the future where god will unite with his people israel and they will come together and they will become one and so as the as the bridegroom comes to to this this uh, procession that he is recognized in the position of being god as the father and as the bride would come into this procession, she is recognized as being Israel. And as the bride and bridegroom are, are brought together as one, the, the priest or the rabbi of the synagogue would be recognized as the word of God that would be joining in union God the Father to his people that he's made covenant with, and that being the word of God is the covenant. And so the rabbi would be recognized the word of God that has joined the two together as one. And so every wedding that would be hosted in in the, the Hebrew people, all of the guests would purify themselves. And of course, the rabbi would purify himself. Of course, the bride and the bridegroom would, would purify themselves. And so you have these jars, these six stone jars at 20 or 30 gallons each because it takes a lot of water to purify the party. And so Jesus tells the servants, now keep in mind, uh, each of these, so you got six jars holding approximately let's go in the middle of 20 or 30 let's say 25 gallons so you've got six jars of 25 gallons that that's a lot of water <laughs> that that's going to be 
set up. But of course, you have a pretty large uh, party that is there for the wedding. So Jesus tells the servants, fill the jars with water. Now they filled them up to the brim. So you got you got a good you got a good thirty gallons. I'm going to go with thirty because you fill them to the brim. That means they're levels at the top. So it's thirty gallons of water. What is that? Six times thirty is eighteen, one hundred eighty gallons of water sitting there. And and they filled them to the brim. And verse number eight says, and he said to them. Now draw out and take to the master of the feast. And so from these large water pots that they have, they're to draw pitchers of water out. And it's those pitchers of water that the servants are going to go in that they're going to provide for the cups of the, the, the wedding party, the, the banqueting guests. And so he said, draw out and take it to the master of the feast. So they did. Because Mary told them, whatever, you, whatever he tells you to do, do it. So they're just doing what they're told to do. And it's going to be very exciting because the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. Well, no kidding. There's no question he didn't understand where it came from because nobody knew what had taken place except for those servants. But now the position of a servant is not to say anything during this feast, which is why Jesus, one of the reasons why I believe that Jesus went ahead and fulfilled this, this request from his mom is because these servants are not at liberty to be able to say where this wine came from. These servants are not at liberty to be able to talk about the amazing miracle that just took place that they just saw from Jesus. So Jesus doesn't have a problem necessarily with fulfilling this particular request because it isn't a request that's going to make him known among the people yet. <clears throat> now, there's no question that this isn't going to get out once that banqueting feast and everything is over and the master of the feast is going, where in the world did that wine come from? I know I didn't have that kind of wine. I know I didn't have that, that kind of good wine anyways i know that all of the stuff that i had that was at least somewhat good was all drank and we were about to have to go through the gruel uh, the gruel would be the wine that was nasty the wine that that certainly had an alcoholic kick to it no doubt but it was gross like it was old, not older uh, was a good way to say it. it was it was a wine that was going bad and so that's what you break out after everybody's had all the good stuff is saying, well, look, I'm, I'm out of my good stuff. So you're just going to have to deal with the with this nasty stuff. Uh, but nevertheless, it comes down and, and Jesus, he does this great miracle. The servants, they know what happened, but they're not at liberty to say anything. <clears throat> so the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he says to him, everyone serves good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. He said, but you've kept the good wine until now. I mean, this this is a, a mark up for you, son. Being the bridegroom is to say, you're going to go far in this, this town. <laughs> That's pretty sweet. But needless to say, uh, understand that another point of why I do not believe that this wine that Jesus would make is going to be alcoholic is because of the purity of Jesus. Number one, he uses the jars that those stone those stone jars that that we talked about. 
he used those which were the, the jars of purification. Well, those jars themselves have prayers that are said over them and are certified as being kosher or being that which is without leaven or without sin. And so understand that the jars themselves would mark the purity of the, the wine that would come from them as not being alcoholic because alcohol is actually a fermentation. It's an introduction of yeast. It would be a leaven at that point, and it wouldn't be allowed to be in those jars to begin with because the purpose behind those jars are purification. But the, the second reason that, that I uphold that this is non-alcoholic wine is because that Jesus has no leaven in him that Jesus is pure and those things that Jesus do, has done are pure and those things that Jesus will do are things that are pure. He is the Son of God and there is no leaven in Him. And so those things which He creates, those things which He makes, remember all the way back in, in the very origin of creation, all things were very good. It isn't Jesus that introduces corruption. It isn't Jesus that introduces uh, sin or, or leaven. And so those things that Jesus himself will do and the miracles that Jesus performs, they're all pure. They're all good. He, he takes a person from a, a broken state of blindness and he corrects that blindness into the purity of the way he should have seen from the beginning. He takes a person that cannot hear and he fixes his hearing to the way it should have been in the beginning. He fixes the lame person to be able to get up and walk because he should have been able to have a freedom of movement from the beginning. All of the things that Jesus does are things that are corrections to the corruptions that exist in the world. And so the wine that Jesus would make would be that which would have been from the Garden of Eden, not from the, from the alcohols and the things that we find that, that made Noah drunk after he got done from, from his journeys on the ark or the, those, those alcohols and things of that nature is not in Jesus to, to do this. And besides, there's a lot of scripture that reveal that, that alcohol is, is not something that is good before God. He sees people as being drunkards and he's disapproving of, of alcoholism and of, of drinking great amounts of alcohol anyways. And so this isn't something that Jesus would do to cause people to stumble, to cause people to, to get drunk. That would be against his nature. And so this is the issues that I have with people thinking that this is, oh, well, it's wine. It must be alcoholic. No, that's not the case at all. This the reality of this, this wine is that it is as, as pure as Christ who created it. And it is as pure as the water that was in those basins. And so that's very exciting to think about. The scripture says in verse number 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Well, they believed in him to a degree. They believed in his power to do miracles. They believed in his, his knowledge of the word of God. They believed in the messages that he taught them. But there was one area that they just couldn't come over as concerning their belief. And that was the belief of resurrection. 
And even after we're going to discover the resurrection of Lazarus not too long from now, and the resurrection of Jairus' daughter, which is a whole other matter. Yet still, we're going to be in a situation where his disciples are going to see Jesus personally take his last breath. And that's going to be earth-shattering for their belief in him as Messiah. But it gets fixed three days later. So we'll, we'll carry on. It says, verse number 12, After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, this is another place where you're going to find Jesus getting right underneath the skin of the Sadducees, but of the Pharisees for certain, and the scribes right off. And that comes to the cleansing of the temple. Now, keeping in mind the, the, the reason why Jesus is there at Jerusalem, of course, he's, he's hanging out in Capernaum for a couple of days, but the reason why Jesus is going to be at the temple in Jerusalem is because the beginning of his ministry, as we see him here, is beginning at the time of the Passover or Pesach, the, the first of the, the three spring feasts. And the Feast of God, the first of the three spring feasts, which we'll be coming up on here as we've crossed the divide and entered into January of 2022, is the Feast of the Passover, the 14th day of the first month. The 15th day is recognized as a Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in that particular feast is eight days long. And then the 16th day of that first month is recognized as the Feast of First Fruits. And it's very important, these three feasts, as they come together, oftentimes throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, they're going to be recognized under the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, and that one particular feast, it marks the whole of the first three spring feasts, because from the day of the 15th, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, from that day, you mark... 50 days, and you're going to come to the middle feast of the seven feasts of God, recognized as Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. Now, when you, you see Jesus, he's coming into Jerusalem at this point of the Passover. This is kind of important because of what the Torah, or what the law of God says, as concerning the Passover. As that each family of Israel is to take unto themselves a lamb of, of their own flocks. And that lamb is going to pay the price for that family. And they are to spend a whole year with this lamb to ensure its safety, to ensure its cleanliness, to make sure it's without spot, spot or without blemish. And, and that at the end of the year, they are to offer that lamb to the high priest. And that, that is the offering that will be a praise unto God for the remembrance of the deliverance that the people have received from bondage. And so this is the importance of this feast that God had marked all the way back in, in uh, Exodus chapter number 12, when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. He said, this will be a perpetual feast unto you, and you will keep it from generation to generation, so that you will remember always the great deliverance that you have received from the bondage that you were in with, with Egypt. And so it was important that it was by the family, that it was a lamb that they raised, that it, that it is a personal investment in your life to give to God. Well, the, the Jews, of course, from going into captivity 
the northern kingdoms, by the way, and Israel, the northern ten tribes that got captive, captured by Assyria, and then, of course, by the time Babylon comes on, that you have the the tribe of Judah and, and the tribe of Benjamin to the south, as recognized where Jerusalem is being taken over by Babylon at the final conquest of Babylon in 586 B.C. And then from that period of time, the people being in, in captivity up until they have a reprieve from the Persian kingdom under Cyrus, that they would be able to go back and that they would be able to rebuild the temple and that they would have another reprieve that would come under under Greece as being left alone. They may be able to establish their practices again until Rome, of course, comes in and and still allows for the practices but alters the practices because they changed the temple from that which was originally uh, for the for the Jewish people that the court of the Gentiles would be brought in and and made by Rome so that the the Roman people could come to the temple of God as being another one of their gods assimilated into their culture and that they may be able to revel so that the Jews would have to walk through the court of the Gentiles before they could get into the actual inner court and outer court where the women and the men would, would be in the temple of God. So understanding all of that, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus, he went up to Jerusalem. But what does he find in the temple at verse number 14? But those who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So instead of this being a personal investment of a people that, that must give give of their life, give of their work, of their time, of of a portion of their their life, essentially a portion of their finances, their their overall economy, and raising this particular sheep in order to be able to give a sacrifice acceptable unto God, they now have, as we discovered in the in the Christmas narrative, this particular fold of shepherds that are out there raising sheep for the temple, that there are people that are keeping livestock for the temple. There are people that are keeping pigeons, turtle doves, any particular creature that would be necessary for an offering. They have, they have people tending to these particular animals and they are marking all of these animals that would be in the, in the stock of the temple as being kosher or as as it was being halal or or pure so any one of them would be an acceptable offering from the high priest to give to god because all of them have been certified because all of them belong uh, essentially to the temple itself so all you need to do as an israelite now all you need to do is just have enough money to be able to bring to the temple so you can understand that the temple's coffers are overflowing with with their god with the money that they they so enjoy which gives them status among people and status among romans and so in the temple jesus comes in and he finds this selling of the oxen and the sheep of the pigeons and the money changers so what does Jesus do? Well, he he's upset about this because keep in mind, this is his father's house. This this doesn't belong to man. And that's kind of an important point about your church. 
and about the church that I serve in is that this church, it doesn't belong to you. It is not yours. You didn't start it. You didn't have the power to start it. You didn't have you didn't have a say in its in its origins. You say, well, my great 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 grandpa started that, or my great grandpa started that, or a group of us gathered together and we we began in a storefront. So, yeah, we did start this. No, you didn't. You were instruments that God chose to use to gather people together in a community to to bring forth His house in that community. That was the work of God entirely. The way that your church began was a work of God. The fact that you came together with a group of people to even start a church is the work of God. Because most people can't work together for nothing. And so the very fact that you could get along well enough to be able to even start a church is the work of God. Nothing about any church in this nation that is God-fearing and God-honoring was anything to do with the people but everything to do with God. And this is very important because this temple, this temple was was not uh, constructed by man. This temple was, was constructed by God. How do I know that? Because the very dimensions, the very details of this temple were spelled out to Ezra. Remember that Ezra is the man who is going to build this this temple from Solomon's temple that was destroyed by Babylon in 586 BC, Ezra under the Persian kingdom is going to be allowed to come back and to to build the temple again. But what are the building blocks that Ezra is going to use? Well, when you open the book of Ezekiel, which by the way was approximately 80 years before the Babylonian overthrow, God knows the destruction of, of his temple god provides through ezekiel a detailed explanation of length width height i mean square model you name it he literally from from ezekiel bolt chapter number 35 clear out to chapter number 43 details every single stone every single wall every single dimension that would be for the rebuilding of the temple now at the destruction of the temple you'll find that that with with ezra the book of ezra that god allows for the temple to be rebuilt but the old men cry now the young men praise the lord because god has reestablished his house among the israelites among men but the old men cry because they remember the former glory of Solomon's temple and all of the gold and all of the glory that was of that temple. This was just one that is made of rock and stone. Well, needless to say that God's the one that gave authority for that temple to be reconstructed as he he allowed it to be done through the Persian kingdom for Israel to do it. And God is the one who gave the details of the blueprints that would be able to construct the, the current temple that is got all these animals in it now and god had given the strength to the people to be able to put one stone upon another to be able to complete the building of the temple within a 70 year time frame so it's very important to understand that it is god's house that it is god's work that it is god who accomplishes these things and he uses us we are his instruments it isn't something that is of us. It is something that is done through us of God. So 
This is kind of important for us to really wrap our head around that. So Jesus, upon seeing this temple filled with all of these things and money changers collecting this money, he, he does the most loving thing that could ever have been done for this people to excite them into loving Jesus. <laughs> and that is in verse 15. He made a whip of cords. He, he wove some cords together to make a good whip. And he drove all out of the temple. So he drove all the animals out of the temple. Well, I mean, it's not like they're going to be uh, driven into pens and different things of that nature. These things are just bursting out of the, the porticos or the, the openings, the gates of the temple. These things are just flying out of the temple. I could, You can only imagine the sight of this, with, especially with oxen and and cheap he's whipping this and they just take off running i mean get out of the way because it's trample you and so he, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and for the money changer he just poured out the coins of the money changers overturned their table i mean just i mean just jesus just angry with his people just angry and and he told those who sold the pigeons he said take these things away now, the pigeons, he didn't let go out of the cages there in the temple because then they would just fly all over the temple. But he commanded them while they're in their cages to take them out of the way. He said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And with his disciples, they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a zeal for God's house again, that the church would recognize that, that this is God's house and that we would have a zeal for his house, that we would desire for holiness to be within its walls, that, that we, we would seek to be a people purified, to walk into the walls of the churches, recognizing that we enter into the palaces of a king and that we would have a great zeal for, for the message of God to be powerful in the, in the scripture and that we wouldn't be entertained by stories anymore, but that we would want the pure word of God to be our, our guide. We want to hear the truth of, of God's word again is recognizing that, that the Bible is the authority of God's word for our heart to know how to live and what to, what to believe even. That's what God's house is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be an entertainment center. It's not supposed to be a rock show. It's not supposed to be these other things that in their particular venues are just fine. You, you go to a concert, go to a concert, enjoy a concert. That's not what God's house is meant to be. God's house is meant to be holy. And God's people are meant to be a people holy. And what good it would be for us to have a zeal for the house of God again, that we would be consumed by it. And I've got to stop there today, but that was pretty sweet. Jesus running things out of the temple. And and I don't want to talk about the, the prophecy of, of Jesus's death and resurrection yet, because that's for tomorrow. So uh, that we'll end at 17 here and praise the Lord for the day and the voice that he has given for this servant to carry on with you in John chapter 2. Father, thank you. We pray your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, guys, God bless you, keep you, cause his face to shine upon you. And I'll catch you tomorrow for the prophecy of Jesus' resurrection and several things more. Y'all take care.